I hope this is. Okay, any prayer requests? Any prayer requests? Do you remember Mary? John's? Mary, yeah. Mary's not here either. Um, I hope, um, I hope, <coughs> I hope this won't offend anybody. I think you all know that I do everything I can to try to not make this political. But I saw um, a short clip earlier today of Trump um, awarding the Medal of Freedom to Tiger Woods, and I was so proud of both of them. I don't know how well you follow sports, but if, if any of you have followed his career, you know that 10 years ago his life was just filled with scandals. I mean, he was one of the greatest athletes in the world um, at that time. I look at him and who's the tennis Roger Federer, Roger Federer. and um, Tiger Woods is two two of the great figures of our time. Good men um, represented their sport really graciously. It's something lots of athletes don't have. They just don't. But if you know anything about Woods, you know that his life was full of scandals. I mean, there were just ugly, ugly things going on. Um, he struggled for 10 years to come out of this thing and came back a couple of weeks ago and won the Masters. Just a, an astonishing feat. Anyway, Trump awarded him the Medal of Freedom and I was just proud of them both that, that he could, a black athlete um, in golf um, and, and to do what he's done morally, spiritually, not just athletically, but anyway, I want to say my own thanks for that tonight. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, um, particularly in the Mass this morning. Your words to us, um, you're calling all the disciples to be fishers of men and to teach them to serve, um, to, to take what they've been given and give it away freely. That's what you did. Um, you troubled Peter again there on the shore when they were coming off the boat and weren't sure who it was that was cooking and then asked him, who do they say? Who do you say I am? Or, or, yeah. What were the words? No, three Peter, times. Peter, do you love me? Oh, do you love me? Yeah, Peter, do you love me? <coughs> remember, the, remember before the, the uh, crucifixion, who do they say I am? We went over that in class. Here it's um, the risen Lord. And he's on the shore line cooking and asks the, the, the fishermen to put down their nets and they brought in this great hall and, and Christ fed them. He fed them. This is God serving. And Christ asked Peter three times again, um, do you love me? The third time Peter's <laughs> getting irritated again. Of course you know I love you. And every time Christ said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That's our call to take whatever our gifts, whatever our fields, business, law, medicine, it does not matter. Whatever our field is, um, to serve with him, to bring something that lots of people don't know. So my prayer for us all um, tonight is to do that. Um, um, to take seriously what Christ is asking us, to feed his sheep, our sheep. Um, um, to serve um, completely in anything we do. As for a special blessing on Mary Galton, who's, who began um, chemotherapy treatment today for <coughs> lymph, lymphonia.
for Mary and um, Perfecto, I hope um, he's found a job, it looks like he has, for um, Bob and Marcy um, and for all of us. And I offer special thanksgiving for the award that um, Tiger Woods was given today. What a great honor. What a wonderful image to all of us um, for a man to have gone into a black hole as deeply as he did to pull himself up. Um, he could not. <laughs> He, he made it clear today, he could not have done that without help, and there's no way he could have done it without you. None of us can. Um, help us all go to our knees in our hearts, um, living um, you, um, keeping you with us to help us to do those things we, we can't on our own. Let your blessing be upon all of us and all of our work, whatever it is we're doing, bring you most especially to our relationships in our families, in our marriages with our kids. Um, we offer these prayers, Christ, in your name. Amen. Okay. Um, can you take out the Easter poems? Does everybody have them? Are you all okay? I've got an extra copy of Everybody have Let's do Herbert. <clears throat> I'll just do one tonight and then we'll 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 do the last Herbert poem next week when we finish up our work in this class. Remember, George Herbert was a 17th century poet, belonged to that group called metaphysical poets because it's really interesting to see what that, most people don't even know what the implications of that are. <clears throat> all of these poets were unique in one sense. All of them were looking back to a Catholic medieval world in, um, that made major accomplishments in theology and philosophy. So all of them had, looking back, they all had this sense of um, metaphysical realities, spiritual realities. And they brought that to their poetry at a time when that metaphysical view was fading. Because when the Copernican Revolution takes place and, and science becomes the way of life for everybody, there's a, there's a turn away from metaphysical realities to empirical realities. To, the tendency of the modern world is to deny metaphysics and think <coughs> nothing's true unless it's scientific. So those poets were, did amazing things. They had a strange language and a way of talking about things that poets never do. They were bringing metaphysics into everything they did, and so that's where they got that title. Herbert belonged to that group. He was an Anglican priest, um, and he devoted his life to poetry. He's written some of the most beautiful poetry, I think, in the English language. These are two of his poems on Easter. We'll read one tonight, and then next week we'll, we'll finish. Easter Wings by George Herbert. <clears throat> Lord, who created us man in wealth and store, though foolishly he lost the same, decaying more and more till he became most poor. With thee, O oh, let me rise as larks harmoniously and sing this day thy victories, and shall the fall further to fight the flight in me. My tender age and sorrow did begin, and still with sickness and shame that did so punish sin that I became most thine with thee. Let me combine and feel thy victory. 
For if I imp my wing on thine, affliction shall advance the flight in me. Everything that he suffers will make him better because he knows the outcome of it will be a risen life. It's a celebration of Easter that we rise again with Christ. Um, okay. Um, by the way, one last word. Next week, you know, next week we're, we're going to try to pull together Milton and Dante. So I'd like to just ask that everybody give some serious thought to what we did with Milton and, and everything that we've done with Dante so that you come with good questions or good thoughts or whatever it's meant to you. I'm, I'm eager to hear. And you know that after next week we start Chaucer. And let me just say this one no, word about Bowie Chaucer. Or oh, sorry, Boethius. <laughs> you guys are too quick for me. God, make me jump. Um, Boethius. This actually, my point is the same. Here, here's the point that I wanted to make. The interesting thing for us now, we've all done Dante before as a part of the Lydda's prophecy. This was a different segment. What we just did with Milton and, and Dante is different. But one of the interesting things that I think we'll all discover when we do Boethius and Chaucer is we're going back to a medieval Catholic worldview, what Catholicism was like before modernity. I think you're going to find that interesting. Because when you read Chaucer, put Chaucer and Dante together. If you read Chaucer and Dante, you become aware of how rich the world was in a Catholic medieval Europe. And I think you're going to feel more aware, more sharply conscious of how the world has changed since then. Years ago, I was invited um, to take part in a week um, lecture series and the theme of it was the restoration of Catholic culture. The restoration of Catholic culture. My opening words were, I, I tried to be as gracious as I could, were that I don't think we can restore a Catholic culture in America. America was never Catholic to begin with, and we can't go back to a medieval Europe. We can't go back to a medieval Catholicism. My words were, we have to move forward in a faith with the Spirit, with the Spirit, bringing him in a way that's different from what it was in, in Catholic Europe, you know, in, in, the, in the 7th century with Boethius and the 13th century with Chaucer. But I think one of the interesting things that we're going to discover together when we do Boethius and Chaucer is a medieval view of the world. It's going to be very, very different from modernity. And we'll see it in a number of ways. We're going to see it with Chaucer, Boethius and Chaucer. We're going to see it even more when we break from Chaucer to do Shakespeare. Because Shakespeare's going to be doing the same thing that Chaucer's doing, but he's going to be doing it as a modern. When we do the Theseus, you know, Chaucer's The Knight's Tale, and then Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. We're going to look at the same materials, the Theseus, the founding of Western civilization. One is going to be deeply Catholic, medieval. One is going to be, I believe, Shakespeare's Catholic. Some people will quarrel about that, but, but Catholic and modern, very, very different. So you're going to look back on um, our faith historically at a time before modernity set in. So it'll, I think it'll, I think you'll, you'll be interested. You'll see what we do. Okay, see what we discover. Okay. Um, <clears throat> 
bring Dante to a close. Um, I, I cannot tell you how, how much I hope for this class tonight because I read the end of the Divine Comedy in awe and astonishment with what Dante's doing. We've talked for the last couple of weeks about a prophetic aspect of literature, and I've been pushing that, that, um, that, that certain great works have a prophetic quality to them. Two things, to just to look back um, on that, because I think I've said enough about it, but two things I want to remind you of. Um, um, remember Paul's, St. Paul's description of the body of Christ. He calls us all the body of Christ. Every one of us has a part in it. Doesn't matter what we do. It can be, um, we can be a salesman, we can be a teacher, be a plumber, football player, it does not matter. We all, we all have a part to play in that body. It's called the mystical body in our church that exists inside of time and outside of time. It continues through time. We're a part of that body connected to Christ. And in his description of that body, he, he says that some people have gifts of wisdom, some people have gifts of healing, some people speak in tongues, some perform great deeds, some are teachers, and some prophesize. Okay? Um, and I'm, I'm putting Dante in that category, that he's not just a poet in the epic tradition, that's what I've been, he's also bringing to us something prophetic. <clears throat> So when we think about Paul's image of people having different gifts, um, it, it, you can say that Dante just gifted as a poet. And I don't have any questions about that. But I also think he's got something prophetic, and, and he is self-conscious about that in the book. He even draws our attention to it. One more aspect about this prophetic element that I want to leave you with before we, before we go into other things tonight. You rem for those of you who've been here, you remember when we did the Iliad and the Odyssey. You remember, for those of you who've done the Iliad, that, um, that the Iliad is about the Trojan War. It's been going on for nine and a half years. There's no promise, no indication that that war will stop. Somebody um, comes offering booty, ransom, for a girl who was captured by the Greeks. And instead of um, accepting the ransom and giving the girl up, Agamemnon, the king, you remember, refuses. And he says, I'm not going to give my girl up. Why should I give? He's a king. He's very self-centered, very, very selfish, um, like, like men of power. He says, I'm not going to do it. And um, Achilles says, give her up. We're having, there, by the, there was a plague for 12 days, and the Greeks were dying. Achilles goes to his king when the king says no, because the, the plague is sent because he didn't accept it. The ransom was a holy offering. Achilles says, give her up. He says, I'm not going to do it. I'll take your woman. Well, that's a turning point for a little story because remember, what drives that book is a sense of honor, that honor is conferred by the wealth that you have. I've been saying from the beginning, there's no more modern book on America than the Iliad. <laughs> um, almost everything we do in our life is for prosperity, wealth, money. Um, Achilles realizes that if, if honor's conferred by somebody, by the wealth that they can give you, it can be taken away. So if that's where our honor rests, who are we? 
If we're only somebody because people give us something or we have earned certain things, what happens when it's taken away? By the way, this is Boethius' great problem. He's going to die. Um, so what the Iliad is about is um, re rediscovering an intrinsic worth to man. That it isn't just material goods that confers an honor on somebody, because if that's so and it's taken away, then we're nothing. So the, it's the founding work of Western civilization because it showed Achilles in the ninth book, all of you have done this, reaches Agamemnon sends this embassy and offers him tons of money. And Achilles refuses. He said, such, such gifts I, I, I don't want. Um, I, I, such gifts I don't, I, such gifts I don't want. I can't remember his words, but I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. Those are his words. He's come to discover that there's a transcendent quality to the human person that's beyond material wealth. That's a turning point in the book. And what's interesting after that is his friend wants to go into the war for him because the Greeks are getting killed. With Achilles out of the war, the Greeks are being devastated. Patroclus, his friend, says, if you're not going to go back in the war, you big pouty baby, is basically what he says, <laughs> let me have your armor because the Trojans were terrified of Achilles. Patroclus goes into the war with Achilles' honor, that is, trying to be like Achilles, and he, he's killed. Hector takes that armor, he tries to put it on to try to be like Achilles. He's killed. Um, when Achilles realizes that the best friend he ever had died because he didn't go back into the war, he feels implicated. He goes back into the war having admitted it was his fault. He's the only man in the, in the Iliad to admit his own fault. When he goes back into the war, he cannot be stopped. He's invulnerable. Nobody can touch him. For those of you who've taken the course, you know that my reading of that is that he's very much like somebody going to an AA meeting. Insane. I'm an alcoholic. Once you acknowledge your faults and they're out in the open, what do you have to be afraid of? You know? I mean, so this is going to be one of Boethius' arguments. So long as we depend on all these material goods, we're partly helpless because we depend on them so much. And what happens when they're all taken away? That's going to be the great theme. That's the Job story, when everything's going to be lost, everything's going to be gone. But here's the point I want to make. When Achilles goes back into that war, nobody can stop him. What has he got to be afraid of? Now apply that to Dante, because you know all the way through the Commedia, he keeps getting these warnings that something's going to happen. You, you all know that they've already happened. He's writing eight years afterwards. But he, he gets these warnings that he's going to lose everything. And as a matter of fact, we know that he does. He's sent into exile. He will not be allowed back in Florence at cost of his life. They will execute him if he comes back. He's lost everything. Here's my point. When a man loses everything, does he look, can he look at the world the same way anymore? Think about an alcoholic who, who needs drink. But so long as we keep depending on things excessively, I mean, they may define our lives. What happens when we don't have them anymore? What's happening to Dante is he's lost everything. Everything. His home, his family, his wealth, his time, his honor. So try to, try to stand in the position of somebody like that who's lost it and ask yourself whether that man can ever look at the world the same again. You can either kill yourself. I mean, we know people do. And they lose everything. They take their life. 
or it makes you look at the world in a different way and makes you question everything. So the, I think one of the prophetic aspects of this work is the result, the fruit, of Dante having lost everything. Um, because once, once any of us is in that position, it's as if we're free. The attachments, the power, the wealth, the fear of losing, you know, any of it, is gone. The great argument that Boethius is going to make is, what, how prepared are we when we go to our death? You know, I've already told you, Boethius is whining and crying. I, I'm being unfairly treated. I'm, Lady Philosophy is going to have none of it. She's, she's going to tell him, you, you've got to get clear on some things here. And so the whole argument is to help him see that he's got to do some things because what's happening is a part of God's plan. And um, he, he's got to learn to see things about himself in the world that he didn't before. Dante's in that position. Okay? He's a man who wrote in exile. He didn't have a home. He was, remember his own words, he had to stay with people that he almost could not tolerate. He had a couple of friends who were dear, dear friends whom he loved, you know, who helped him. He stayed with for time. So, but his exile was a, was a mixture of good and bad things. I mean, but clearly this is a man who's standing in the world seeing things very differently from the way he would have 10 years earlier. Okay. The epic theme, the epic theme. We're coming to a close on the Divine Comedy. We're reaching the end of it. Okay. This is where we've been going. It, we started to remember when Dante started to climb that hill, he wanted to go to God. We learned later, whether he knew it or not, he was in danger. He was damned. We know that he was damned by his life. That's what we learned from Mary and Lucia and Beatrice and Virgil. It's that whole, we, we see a divine grace involving all of those people who are moving on, on Dante's behalf to try to help him. Because if he didn't have that help, he was lost. We know that. Now we're at the end. And it's interesting that all of the people who set that grace-filled action into motion are going to be there at the end. You will see them all in the Imperium, in the Beatific Rose. They're all going to be there. Um, so it's coming full circle. He set out to go see God. Remember to climb that mountain. We learned that the problem with Dante was he wanted to do it himself. And he can't do it himself. He could only do it with help. Now he's at the end of it. The Divine Comedy is going to close with him actually seeing God. He's going to be in his presence. It's an extraordinary moment, I think. So the epic theme... What is the epic theme? The epic theme of the Iliad is kleos, honor. It's the Greek word for honor. And even if you didn't read it, you, you, you've heard from me just briefly going over it. The, the, every epic deals with the disorder of a people, a disorder of a people. They don't know it. They can't see it. Um, that disorder... Um, brings them out of attunement with a divine order. They're out of tune with things. They don't know it. An individual is given a, a divinely oriented task. He has to do something nobody else can. Achilles, with, Achilles withdraws from the war. He has to suffer alone. He's in isolation. He doesn't belong to the group anymore. He's standing outside that group the way everybody else defines their lives. He's outside of that group. So we know that the epic 
action involves a hero who has to do something that nobody else is, will do. It, it, it makes him lonely, it isolates him, it puts him into darkness. He can't look at the world the way he did before, the way everybody else does. Because everybody else in the Iliad is still, they're still killing each other, they're still fighting for booty, for their sense of honor. What Achilles brings into this disordered sense of honor is this new sense that honor is something involving the gods, this transcendent order. And what happens to him is he accepts his death, he accepts his fault in Patroclus' death, he knows when he goes back into the war he's going to die, so this is a man who's giving up his life, just like Dante. There's nothing, he's not fighting for booty anymore. He, he enters the war, he's not afraid anymore. What does he have to lose? So the man who goes back into that battle is not the man who began the epic. So what Homer gives us in the Iliad is that there is, at the, in the soul of man, some transcendent aspect, something that relates him to the gods. Not material wealth, not booty, um, not all the things that men fight for, and a false sense of honor. The great theme of the, of the Odyssey was nostos, from which we get nostalgia, the homecoming. That Odysseus is away from home for 10 years during the war, and it takes him 10 years to get home in a voyage. The whole story is about his struggle to get home. Nostos. What Homer's showing us in the Odyssey is there's this deep, deep longing for man to go back. It's, it's, you know, there's a, you're going to find this, I think, when we do Chaucer. Chaucer has the description of a bird when it's in captivity. Set the bird loose, it goes back to the forest. There's this longing for its home. That every, every human being has this longing to go back to something we lost. We talked about that in the, remember in the Purgatory when I said it's all about memory, trying to recover something we've lost. The great theme of the Odyssey is nostos. Um, the great theme of the Aeneid was the founding of this new city. Unlike any city that ever existed before, Rome. And I, it's, to me, it's just stunning. I've said that there's this prophetic element. Rome is, Rome according to, he's a pagan. Rome according to Virgil is this eternal um, universal city. It will never die. And it's the only city in which all people of all races can come together finally because before that, all other cities were defined racially by their racial makeup. So all other cities were full of wars. Greeks were fighting the Trojans. You know, the Italians were killing each other in Italy when, when Aeneas comes there. Um, and those of you who read the Aeneid, you know that Aeneas can't found this city without getting involved in the civil wars that are tearing Italy apart. And it's just showing how, how deep the racial instincts in man go that they're killing each other. He has to get involved in that war to put it to rest in order to found this city. So the cost of founding this universal city is extraordinary. People dying right and left. Those are the great themes that all get carried forward into the Commedia. What's the theme, the central theme of the Divine Comedy? It's returning to God. Nostos. So what, what Homer had this intuition of, of returning home, and by the way, those of you who've done the Aeneid, another thing, remember Aeneas is 
Troy has been destroyed, he has to found a home. He starts off setting out to found these cities and each time he does he fails. He fails again and again and again and again. And finally he's sent to, to Italy and he discovers when he hears the prophecy that he's actually going back to his home because his ancient, his ancestors came from there. So even though he set out thinking he was going to go to this new land, he's actually returning home. In my end is my beginning. When he gets there, he's going to go back to origins. There's Dante again. Um, so what's the theme of the Commedia? It's man returning home. It's going back to God. But the, but the interesting thing that um, Dante does is this. Remember the, the image of the epic hero from Homer to Virgil, Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, are these men who do these extraordinary physical feats. They're, they're athletic, strong, they're warriors. That's, that's the image. And by the way, that image carries through through the Middle Ages because what's the ideal of a good man in the Middle Ages? A heroic knight, a warrior fighting for Christ. So the, the ideal of the Christian knight or the Christian good man, virtuous man in the Middle Ages is a warrior, but he's fighting for Christ. So they've taken that whole pagan worldview into Christianity. A man who will fight, King Arthur is the great example, Beowulf. Um, what Dante does in, in, in his treatment of this theme of returning home is absolutely radically transform the ideal of the Christian hero. Because you know that for Dante, the Christian hero is not just a man who can kill other people who fight. His fundamental activity through the divine comic is learning. He's showing us that the most important thing for a human being is to learn to see things as they are. So Virgil's a teacher. What, what he's showing us is that the most important thing for us is to learn from each other, from teachers, from guides, that we cannot do this alone, none of us. So if we're going to get back to God, it's only with the help of others. That there's something, there's something so basic to human beings, learning, that we were meant to learn, um, to get better, to become better human beings. So the great epic theme of the Divine Comedy is this nostos, this return to God, but by learning to see him everywhere with good teachers. Virgil's that teacher for, you know, for two-thirds of it, and then Beatrice picks up. And you know that at the end that, um, that Beatrice is going to be replaced, that in order for Dante to complete his task, he needs yet another teacher. We're going to look at that tonight. But the reason for trying to give this some emphasis tonight is to show you that at the center of our faith is this assumption that we carry the past forward because it has something to teach us. We can't dismiss ourselves from the past. I mean, that's the great American ideal. It does not, it wants to put the past away. Dante's saying we can't go forward without the past. We, we're helpless if we don't. We can only create a new world if we learn from the past and, and turn to it for help as we move forward. So the, the theme of the epic changes radically and the notion of the, the, the epic hero changes radically. You know that Dante passes out at least three or four times. He's in tears, he collapses, he faints. Um, 
So he leaves us with a very, very different image of the epic hero, the, the, the image of the Christian hero in the epic. <clears throat> Um, and finally, um, finally, the, the different modes of knowing that we've seen. Remember that the mode of knowing in the Inferno is irony, in the Purgatorio it's wonder, and in the Paradiso it is joy. And the remarkable thing, as I've suggested about the Paradiso, is Dante is showing us that joy should be a part of our life. And I, and I, I want to try to underscore this as well as I can. We all know from our work on the Reformation, if we look at Luther or Calvin or any of the other Reformation thinkers, that, that it's easy for us to use reason in a way that will cripple our faith. I hope that's clear. We can have the strongest faith in the world and cripple it by the way we use our minds. What Dante's doing with Virgil and Beatrice is showing us how much help that we can learn from people who use their minds well. Because without them, there's so much harm we can do with our minds, our intellects. Remember that phrase that I've been repeating for the last several weeks? Women who have the intelligence of love. That was an image of Beatrice and the women that she was with. That, it, that there's a difference between the way we use reason when it's rooted in love and the way we use reason when it's self-serving or, you know, just, it's motiv not motivated by something other than love. So what Dante's showing us in the last third of his journey is the way in which reason continues to teach him, but it's a reason infused by faith and a divine love. That's absolutely crucial to see, because we learn, the closer we get to God, that Beatrice has always got her mind on God. She sees, she's, we'll see it in the, in the story, there are the levels as we go here. She's got her mind on him, on God, so she can see what's going on Dante even before he thinks it. Um, so everything she does with reason takes a different form from it, the way it did with Virgil. She can show us things, help us to see things that reason can make clear to us that Virgil cannot. So, to try to put this on in perspective. So when the Divine Comedy begins, Dante wants to go to God. We know he's damned, we find out, that he can't do it on his own. Mary, Mary was always Mary. She's the one who brings Christ to us. Um, she goes to get Lucia, who goes to get Beatrice, who goes to get Virgil that that whole divine order is set into motion and at the end it's, it's there again lacking Virgil because what we're supposed to take away is this is doing something Virgil cannot do with all of his gifts. Virgil's an extraordinary figure, extraordinary figure. He's an image, he's an image of how great we can be with our minds, how much good we can do in the world, how capable we are. But next to what God can do with reason, it's not enough. Beatrice has to pick that up. So that's just a, a quick, quick review. Um, let me stop. Any, any questions or thoughts about what we've been doing before we go to the end of the Paradiso here? <laughs> what am I not doing right here? <laughs>
Jeannie, come on. No Remember, purgatory is full of steps. It's not slow. Carl, I mean, anybody. No, are we okay? David, yeah. Well, I, I mean, purgatory is full of steps, but we call it in the Paradiso level. It's still climbing. Yes. Maybe the levels mean something different. Right. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's another, I mean, to put it differently, remember the steps are a metaphor. You know, I don't know how literal, it's just that what Dante's showing us are stages in our growth in faith. You know, and the wonderful thing about it, I've said this before, I, I suspect, maybe I'm not, I'm, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but I suspect that for most of us, let me do this differently. When, when I was younger, I had a fellowship once in, in Virginia and left for the summer. And when I came back to California and the family was greeting, it was before all the security stuff was up. You know, you'd look up at the top of the ramp and there would be your family. Today, it's, you have to go outside and pass security guards. Anyway, there, I can remember walking up the ramp and looking at Jonathan, stunned, absolutely stunned, just stunned, three months. And it made me realize in a way that I'll never forget it. I'd say it to parents now, because we're with our children every day, when, you know, when we're raising them, we don't see the changes, they're too gradual. Step away from your child for three months and look at your child. It was stunning to me. And I think it's that way with us in our life, in our faith journey or adventure, whatever you want to call it. Because it's so much a part of ourselves every day, I don't think we can see it very well. And my, my belief is, because most of us tend to be very critical, we, we, we're more aware of the darkness, and it seems constant. I hope I'm not misspeaking here, but not just for myself, but I think that's a fairly accurate, that, you know, but, but I think what Dante's showing it is that it's so gradual that sometimes, I mean, every one of those steps, but we're learning to see differences and um, and he's, he's trying to help us by helping us to see what they are and also recognize that, um, that part of our journey, certainly when we enter the Paradiso, <clears throat> part of our journey is entering into mysteries that our mind has real trouble grasping. The, the, the last cantos in the Paradiso, Dante's going to go blind. When he gets into the level of Saturn, he can't see Beatrice and it's silent. Why does he do that? We'll, we'll get to it in a minute. Because there are periods in our life at, as we enter more deeply into our faith, it's, we enter into what the, what the mystics call the absolute or the void or the, the world disappears. It's quiet. It's silent. That there are, are stages or phases in our journey of faith, if you can, our life in faith, in which we don't see very well at all and it's part of what was meant to be, the, you know, to, um, if we're learning to turn away from the world, we will reach periods where we don't see very well because we've learned to take our orientation from things in the world. So there are steps, and um, in the Paradiso, they, you, you can, the steps show a moving away from the worldliness of the world to something closer to God. That's a much harder state to describe. 
how many us, how many of us would be capable of describing even if we were in it? You know, Dante's a remarkable what he's doing with language to me is just remarkable. Um, okay, any anything else? I hope I hope one of the things that I, we're going to get to this in a minute. With Dante is going to have an examination of faith, hope, and charity, and in the examination on on hope. Beatrice is going to say that there was no man who had as much hope as Dante. I hope, my hope, coming out of this is that, I've said this before, I feel it really strongly, no matter how much we are aware of our sins, how much we can darken ourselves, or the, one of the great gifts of the Paradiso, it seems to me, is Dante showing us that joy is met. Christ did it. It's already been done. He's invited us into the cross. That's our invitation. I said this last week. In the Catholic Church, there's always a corpus on the cross. In the Protestant churches, certainly the lower churches, there isn't any. It's been done. For Calvin, it's over. For us, it's not. We've been invited into a cross understanding that part of our faith is knowing that to the degree that we go there, we're entering into a joy with Christ. The, the Paradiso is an is a uninterrupted joy. It's not in the future. We're supposed, we're supposed to carry hell, purgatory, heaven with us. Aware of dangers, struggling to get out of them, carrying a joy. If hope, I've said this before, if hope means anything, it means hoping when there's no reason to hope. Or it's not hope. <laughs> right? If hope's a transcendent virtue, it's a, it's a supernatural virtue, it's not prudence, fortitude, um, justice, temperance. Those are the natural virtues. Those are within our, we're supposed to be struggling to do that. That's our serious task here. Supernatural virtues are, are gifts from God. Faith means having faith in something when you no longer have reason to have faith. It's when things get really dark that we're asked to hold on. Hope isn't hope unless we no longer have a reason for hoping. Then we turn to God. And I, I think the tendency in a lot of us, I certain, I, I know it's been true for me a lot of my life, um, that we're so capable of doing things that it's not easy to turn to him. But that's our, that's our, that's his gift to us. Um, what Dante's showing us is no, no matter how bad our sins are, no matter what we do, we still go to Christ. That's our hope, that's our faith. And we're supposed to take a joy in it. And I, that's why I said last week, I, I, think it's a hard, that's, I think it's hard for a lot of us to, to enter into joy. It's much easier for us to be sad about things because the world is so bad. So the great gift of the Commedia is it, it's showing us this, how rich our faith is, how important other people are for us, and the hope and faith and love that we're called to do, no matter what's going on in our lives. My, tr my belief, I may be wrong here, I think most of us, because most of us are older, um, when I look back at myself at 20, I just, certainly more stupid than I am now, I hope, but, you know, I look at our children and think, God, what do our kids know today? <laughs> you, you know, when you reach our age, am I misspeaking here? When you reach our age, we, we've learned to see a lot more than we did 20 years ago. I really believe that there's nobody in this room tonight who hasn't endured real crosses. 
I don't think I'm running that. I don't, I, my sense is... Well, don't be so hard on yourself, Don. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about you too, Mark. <laughs> I have no doubts about that anyway. But. Okay, Dante. The themes for this week. The great things in front of us. We're coming to the end of our journey. The end of the journey was the beatific vision. We're going to see Dante seeing God. That's what he's wanted. That's what we'll get to. At some point, we have to see this as a song to Beatrice. His song to Beatrice because she gave him his eyes. And at the end, we're going to see that indirectly, it's as much about Mary, even though she's not been the central figure. Beatrice is the one who took him to Mary and to Christ. So the Divine Comedy is a poem. It's a song. It's musical. It's a song. It's a paean. A song of praise for Beatrice, what she's done for him. Because remember, could he have done this without her? Absolutely not. Would Virgil have had the place that he had with Dante? Absolutely not. Virgil's there because Beatrice knows how much Dante loves poetry. In fact, here's the thing. It's his love of poetry that puts him at risk. <laughs> I hope that's clear. He loves Virgil. He's lower than Virgil. He's damned. Virgil's the one who lifts him up. So... You, the wisdom of this divine action, Mary goes to Lucia, she goes to Beatrice, she goes to Virgil. Um, because God works with our loves, whatever they happen to be for any one of us. And the last thing that's going to be probably um, um, implied, not as obvious, and I, I may be going out on a limb here, probably am again, I think in some ways this poem is one of the most remarkable celebrations of the human body in any work of literature. And I don't know if I should give that away. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm, but now I'm even more determined to wait because I saw that expression of skepticism on Mark's face. <laughs> Just wondering where you're going to go with it. <laughs> sure. Anyway, I hope I, I hope I want to. I I think you'll see that it that that this is an extraordinary celebration of the human body, and indirectly the Eucharist. But let me let's wait. Let's let's look at the book. Let's go back to where just I'm going to just quickly try to summarize some of the things we looked at, and then I'd like to go forward. Um, go back to. 490, I think it's 498, 498, 
who's not with God in perfect happiness. That's a given. Hell is behind, purgatorio is behind, the debt's been paid, we've entered heaven. It's Christ's kingdom. So there's nobody he's going to meet who isn't with God in perfect happiness. So it's absolutely essential to see that. But degrees of merit, measure, abilities, gifts, a different thing. But they are all happy, grateful, um, enjoy. That's the condition of heaven. 499. I turned to Beatrice at my right to learn from her by word or by sign what she thought I should do, and I beheld new brilliance in her eyes, such purity, such ecstasy. Her countenance was now more beautiful than it had ever been. Because remember, the closer she gets to God, like Picarda, the more radiance, light, she will display. It's in her. He's got to get used to seeing it. So at every level, she's going to be more and more beautiful. Okay? Um, I saw when I turned around before my eyes, there was the pure white of the temperate star, the six that had received me in its glow. And it's, it's then that the eagle presents himself, remember, with the, um, the eyes of the, of the souls and the pagans. On page 504, just to, to pick up some of this, um, actually 502, I love this line, it's just a quick review. When he hears the eagle approach him and speak, remember the eagle's formed by all these lights, the souls themselves. For I could hear the beak and see it move, I heard its voice and used words like I and mine, when in conception it was we and ours. This is only one of the amazing things that Dante had to do with language to show something that was beyond words. Um, Fogner does it a lot, um, great poets do. Um, Dante is a master at it. Um, going over, Dante's got this question about the baptized and what will happen because it seems unfair that some people would die um, unjust. Um, all bottom of um, 504, consider that man bored along the Indus where you will not find a soul who speaks or reads or writes of Christ and all of his desires, all his acts are good, as far as human reason sees, not ever having sinned in deed or word. He dies unbaptized, dies without the faith. What is, the, what is this justice that condemns his soul? What is his guilt if he does not believe? Now who are you to sit in judgment seat and pass on things a thousand miles away when you can hardly see beyond your nose? The man who would argue fine points with me if Holy Scripture were not there to guide us surely would have serious grounds for doubt. O earthbound creatures, O thick-headed men, the primal will which of itself is good never moves from itself to good supreme. There is nothing God does that won't be good. The presumption is we, we keep thinking somehow we, we can see into his infinite wisdom. Um, and we, we learn the surprise because we learn then that um, Trajan and Riffius and other pagans were saved. Um, Trajan um, was brought back to life and baptized, and Riffius was um, saved long before Christ because of the disposition of his own soul. Um, so Dante's showing us, um, he's beginning to, we're beginning to enter into the mysteries. Um, we know that our church. Um, bends over backwards 
um, because people are so quick to presume on the one hand and people are so quick to assume that something happens is a religious experience so they take great great pains to to check things out because they they know it's such a it's such an obscure area it, it, we, as humans we can't see into it very well I love the line 512 um, regnum solarum suffers violence gladly from fervent love from vibrant hope only those powers can defeat God's will what can defeat God's will love there's no way God's going to turn away from it no matter how what, whatever it is the greatness of a man's love and he makes that clear not in the way one man conquers another for that will wills its own defeat and so defeated it, it, it defeats through its own mercy and that will wills its own defeat. God allowed himself to be killed because his love of men was so great. So he overcame himself. The violent bear it away. It's the people whose love is great or complete will have God's will behind it. That is, any man who suffers death because he wants to bring the same kind of mercy to what he did that Christ did will defeat God because God himself defeated himself um, let himself go to a cross so we're entering into some of the deepest mysteries of the church um, going over um, let's see even let's see in five just to even take that um, that line from uh, Matthew, when he, or I mean, yeah, from Matthew, when Christ is speaking to Peter, upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against. What does that mean, by the way? I, I, I think lots of people assume a meaning of that, and I think sometimes they're wrong. Upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's the meaning of that line? The church meaning the people. The church. Yes. The church. Christ is the church. I mean, it's the church, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is that? How do you guys understand that? Well, if, you, if the church is Christ and you truly believe and you get the grace of God, hell will not be able to take you. you when you die and you get the grace of God, you will Yeah. So hell will not have victory over what God has claimed. Right, right. Is that okay? It will not prevail. It cannot withstand God's love. Think about the first instance of that. In the harrowing, Christ ascended into hell and souls came out. Hell, hell cannot resist God's love, his mercy. And we saw that in the harrowing. We, we know, understand that from the harrowing, but here he's just making it clear again. That God's mercy is far greater than we understand. We need to be very careful about making judgments. Um, Go, let's see. I love this line, 516. They've entered the sphere of Saturn. Um, the the um, fugitive, the fugitive god who had to flee and went to Italy. That's the mythic story behind Italy and and then the dimension of the founding of Rome, but he enters the um, the sphere of Saturn, and he meets Peter Damien, 
Peter Damien was a great uh, reformer of the church. He, he entered the Benedictine order and, and um, he denounced the corruption in the church fiercely. This was in the 11th century. So remember, we're going back to origins. Now he's going to Peter Damien, who's a great reformer. Peter comes to him, 516. He comes, he emerges from this collection of souls again, these lights. And, um, and then this happens. Then she who saw my silence in the sight of him whose vision can behold all things said to me, satisfy your deep desire. I know I'm not worthy in myself to have an answer from you, I began, but for the sake of her who gives me leave, I pray you let me know what is it that made you come so close to me and tell me why heaven's sweet symphony is silent here in this sphere while below in all the rest its pious strains resound. 517, your hearing is but mortal like your sight, he said. There is no singing here just as there's no smile on Beatrice's face. Because in the line before, Beatrice, or the page before, she says, when Dante turns to her, she can't smile because if she did, the radiance of the joy um, would reduce him to a cinder. Here, it's on page 515, you look in it, it's... If it were not tempered, such effulgence would strike your sight at the way a bolt of lightning shatters the leafy branches of a tree. Um, so he can't, she can't smile because if she did, the beauty of it would reduce him to a cinder. And it's silent. Now what's Dante doing here at the level of Saturn? I think what Dante's doing is entering into the life of the mystic um, where it, it's another remove from the worldliness of the world and it's a part of the journey to God that that the silence um, is the same kind of silence it's a, you can call it the via negativa the neg negativia the, the way of negation of doing away with things is a part of moving to God because we can't go to God holding on there remember that when the angel said don't look back and in the Bible, when they left um, Sodom and Gomorrah, they told, don't look back. That as we move closer and closer to God, we have to turn from the things. And it creates this condition of quiet or silence. or It's a, it's a part of letting go. Um, because we're getting into the depths of a beauty right now that's extraordinary. Um, 517, a ray of God's light focus, focuses on me and penetrates the light in wombing me. He's now in, um, enveloped in light. Um, from this derives the joy with which I burn, the clearness of my flame will ever match my clarity of spiritual vision. Yet even heaven's most illumined soul, that seraph who sees God with keenest eyes, could not explain what you have asked to know. He's not going to be able to put this in words. He's even going to have difficulty when he gets there because he's coming closer to God. 518, the truth you seek to fathom lies so deep in the abyss of the eternal law, it is cut off from every creature's sight. And tell the mortal world when you return what I told you, so that no man presume to try to reach a goal as high as this. Just for a minute, I'm just going to imagine being next to God. <laughs> Honestly, He's infinite, He's infinite light. We can't look, wait, remember, Dante enters the sun. He's not burned. We can't look at the sun without going blind. We try to stare at the sun. You all know that. What's God's like light like in comparison to the sun's light? 
Look at God. How many of us? So the, the effort on our part to try to comprehend God or presume to speak for him sort of should be astonishing because he's so far beyond our own powers. Um, Um, go on 521 Benedict now appears to Dante so he just met Peter Damien from the 11th century Benedict um, lived in the 5th century and he was a great reformer He, um, he, he ran away from home he was disgusted by his parents wealth he lived in a cave for a while and then monks came to ask him um, to join their um, order and he, he was so severe <laughs> in what he asked of them that they tried to poison him and kick him out so once again another reformer what, what Dante's doing is showing that we're getting farther and farther away from the corruptions of the world closer to God and moving back to origins so we went from the reformers of the 12th century to the 8th century and, and now closer to God and he's going to meet um, Adam shortly um, 522, he can't see Benedict's face. 522, brother, your high desire shall be fulfilled in the last fear, for there not only mine, but every wish comes true. For there and only there is every wish become a perfect right, entire one, there where each part is always where it was. That's where reality will be. He says, when you get there, you will be able to see my face. Not now. He's, he's going to need to, to get adjusted to a greater light. Um, 523, the flesh of mortals is so weak on earth, a good beginning does not last as long as the oak springing to the acorn's birth. Um, they ascend the ladder, the celestial ladder, that takes them to the prima mobile, um, at which point Dante will be able to look back and see the entire universe because he's outside of the universe at that point. Plato once said in the Phaedrus that no poet had ever gone to the back of the universe. Dante's, Dante's there. 524, readers, I hope ever to return here to this holy triumph for whose sake I weep my sins and bear my bre beat my breast. No quicker could you have pulled your finger from a flame and thrust it in than I caught sight and was already in the sign that follows Tar. He's returned to Gemini, it's the constellation of his birth. So it, Dante's just making it clear, he's getting back to origins, he's finding out who he is, because he won't know that until his whole past unfolds before him. O glorious constellation, O mighty stars, pregnant with holy power, which is the source of all of what whatever genius may be mine. In company with you, there rose and said, He who is father of all mortal life, when I drew my first breath of Tuscan air. Go down. You are so close to final blessedness, said Beatrice, that you may now keep your eyes unclouded and your vision keen. And so before, in, look at that verb. And so before inciting further here, look down and see how vast a universe I've already put breath in your feet. I love that. Before inciting, before going any deeper into the reality that you've begun to enter, remember these reflective verbs, we just, we keep entering into something. Um, my vision traveled back through all the spheres, through seven heavens, and then I saw our globe. It made me smile. It looked so paltry. This is the contemptus mundi theme, contemptus mundi, contempt of the world. 
one of the great themes of Christian mystics. Contemptus Mundi, contempt of the world. Christ says, unless, unless you hate, how did he put it? Unless you hate yourself, unless you hate the world, I will have no part of you. That to be with Christ, you have to turn away from everything, um, because until then our attachments are too great. I hold that mind as best that holds our world for least. And I consider truly wise the man who turns his thoughts to other things. I saw Latona's daughter glowing full without those shadows which had set me once to think that she was rare and dense in parts. He's so beyond um, the, the planets now. Um, so he enters into the fixed stars um, Fate 526 As a bird quiet among the leaves she loves sits on the rest of her beloved young all through the night that hides things from her sight anxious to look upon her long for loved ones Dante's that way just so my lady waited vigilant and tense as she looked at part of heaven beneath which the sun's movement seems to slow then I, who saw her poised and longing there, became like one who wishes he had more and lets his hope feed on anticipation. Behold, going over by 27, behold the host of Christ in triumph. They're in the fixed stars and they look, and, and this is the second time Dante gets a glimpse of Christ. At the level of Mars, remember, he had a glimpse of him on a cross, because that's where the martyrs, the men who gave their lives, Christ was there. Behold the host of Christ in triumph and see the fruit harvested from the turning of these spheres. I saw her face aflame with so much light, her eyes so bright with holy happiness, that I shall have to leave it undescribed. Go down, I saw above a myriad of lights the sun that lit them all, even as our sun illumines the stars of his domain. He's seen Christ with a light coming from him that brings light to everybody else. Through its living light there poured the glow of its translucent substance, bright, so bright that any poor eyes could not endure the sight. O Beatrice, loving guide, sweet one, she answered, that which overcomes you now is strength against with nothing, nothing can defense. He's irresistible to look on him. Within it dwell the wisdom and the power that opened between heaven and earth the road mankind for ages longed for ardently. He's the source of redemption. Um, go down, open your eyes, look straight into my face. Such things have you been witness to now that you have the power to endure my smile. Mm -hmm. With the light that he's received, now he can look at her again. Um, going over, Christ rises again now. He had a glimpse of him. He begins to rise um, in towards the Imperium. We're getting closer to the end of things. Um, and then this happens. The sound of that sweet flower's name, the one I pray to night and day, drew all my soul into the vision of that flame of flames. When both of my eyes revealed to me how rich and glorious was that living star that reigns in heaven as it had reigned on earth, down from heaven's height there came a flaming torch shaped in a ring as if it were a crown that spun around the glory of her light. The sweetest sounding notes enrapturing a man's soul here below would sound like a clap of thunder crashing from a cloud. Does everybody get that simile? That's stunning. The sweetest, the, the sweetest things here on earth would by, be like an ugly thunderclap mm -hmm. compared to the beauty of what he's seeing right now. Because it's so far beyond anything we could imagine. Who's he looking at? Hmm? Mary. Mary. 
The sweetest sounding notes enrapturing a man's soul here below would sound just like a clap of thunder crashing from a cloud compared to the melodious tones that poured from the sweet lyre crowning the lovely sapphire whose grace in sapphires the heaven's brightest figure. She herself is emanating light um, in sapphiring, in lighting the souls of those around her. Uh, and so an angel appears, so Christ starts to rise and Mary follows him. And now an angel comes to Dante. I am angelic love encompassing the joy supreme who breathed from out the womb, which was the place our desire dwelt. And I shall circuit you, heavenly lady, while you follow your son to highest heaven, and with your pen presence make it more divine. So they enter the, um, the prima mobile, and it's from that point that Dante will look down and, um, it, or actually it's here, you'll see the whole earth, but um, he will have his examination in faith, hope, and love. I, um, I want to stop here for a minute, because I, I don't want to go through each one of these exams. Um, but let me just take a minute with the prima mobile. You all know, I, I think I put it out, but I, I, I want to take a minute in here just so there's no confusion. You know that here's the universe, right? With all the planets circling the sun. The prima mobile is a transparent crystalline sphere, the first mover. It's a metaphor. Dante's so clear about this. I mean, he's given us a metaphor for the, if Dante were alive today, he would be using Heisenberg and modern physics to, to make sense of this. The prima mobile is the first mover. It's, it's, it's described as a sphere that encompasses the whole universe because it's that sphere that imparts motion to all the others. It's another way, it's another image that illustrates that God is the first mover of things that everything is set in motion by him. So all of the motions have their angels and other things, but they couldn't move if they didn't receive their power from some other sphere. So it's a metaphor, it's an image of the first mover. Dante describes it as one point as this, that the, the universe is a tree with its roots outside of time. So the primum mobile is an image of the first cause, God imparting motion to the all the secondary causes, what we know is secondary causes, our contingent world. There, um, Dante continues to give us images of how puny the world is on 550. Um, more of this puny threshing ground of ours I would have seen had not the sun moved on beneath my feet. Um, on page 554. These are elaborations on Dante's description of the prima mobile and the difference between um, a view of the world that focuses on material realities and a view over the world that focuses on spiritual realities. He says, 554, if all the universe were ordered in the way these wheels are here, I would be satisfied with what I see. 
but from our world of sense we can observe the turning of the spheres are more God's own the further from its center they revolve. Is that clear? Our world seems to be removed from God because there's so little good going on in it. The farther away from God, the farther away we get from his goodness. This is the metaphor. Uh, go down. If your weak fingers find it difficult to loosen such a knot, it's no wonder for it's, uh, for it's tight from never being tried. So spoke my lady. Then she said, if you wish to be satisfied, listen to what I tell you, then sharpen your wits on it. The course of the material spheres is wide or narrow in accord with or, or less of virtue that infuses each throughout. The greater goodness makes for greater bliss. A greater bliss calls for a greater body, if it's perfect in all of its parts. Therefore, this sphere which sweeps all the world along with it must correspond to this, the inner ring that loves and knows the most. And also, if you will take your measurement not by circumference, but by the power inherent in these things that look like rings, you will observe a marvelous congruence of greater power to more, lesser to small, in every heaven with its intelligence. Go down below. I heard them sing, Hosanna, choir and choir, to the fixed point that holds each to its ubi, its place, the place they were and will, ever, will forever be. And she who looked into my mind and saw I was confused told me, the first two rings show you the seraphim and seraphim. Those are the highest orders of the angels. They spin so swiftly, speeding in their bonds to grow as much like that point as they can, and they can in proportion to their sight. So he's given us two views now. If we're looking from the back of the universe at the material aspects of the world, then the center, the earth, is unmoving. It's just, you know, that's where death was. That's where everything dies. That was the Ptolemaic view, right? The earth was at the center, all the planets revolved around it. So um, the greater goodness belongs to the spheres closest to God, farthest away from the earth, because the earth was the place of mortality. It's where things died. The, the planets were eternal. Men come and go, right? Always. In the Iliad, men come and go. They In the other worlds, the planets, they're always there. That's why the ancient world looked at the planets as homes of the gods. They were eternal. They outlived men. So if you look at the materiality of the or of the world, what you see is the earth at the center, unmoved, and greater goodness as you move closer to God. If you look from the premobile spiritually, that is the way Beatrice is, because remember, she's looking at God, Dante's looking at her, what, she, what he sees through her then is a still point. This is Eliot's still point, those of you who did it. Because God is at the center, moving so fast, like the wheel, the center of that wheel, is moving so fast, it's still, it's a still point. It's a metaphor for showing God is every, that the still point, for those of you who did the Eliot, the still point is everywhere. You can't explain anything in the world. We went through this with Eliot's poem. Not the stare, not the vase, not the violin, not a dancer. All motion implies a still point, or it couldn't exist. So from one perspective, he sees goodness growing as it approaches God, from another perspective, spiritually, he sees God at the center of everything, moving so fast. And the seraphim and the cherubim and all the other angels move out by degrees, because the seraphim are those closest to God in love. Each one of them. So he's 
conflating, bringing together two very different worlds or views of the world. Okay. Um, I don't want to go through this, but just for those of you who are interested, Dante has this question because now they're approaching angelic orders. They're dealing with questions about angels on 560. Dante wants to know if angels have memory. David, why? Because they see through God. Can you flesh that out a little bit? I'm not sure that it's obvious to Well, they, they were created, right? And right. God created them not to be outside of him. And so they would see through him. Or in didn't. him. Huh? Or in him. Yeah, oh, okay. I meant in him, not see through, literally. Right. They would see in him, so they didn't need to have you know, anything other than him. Whereas we relate to brains and eyes and right. physical things. Yeah, that's pretty much Dante's explanation. Um, middle of 560. From the first moment these beings found their uh, bliss within God's face in which all is revealed, they never turn their eyes away from it. Hence, no new object interrupts their sight. If God sees everything and they're looking at him, there's no, there will be no past. Because there's no past for God. God sees. There is no past or future for him. He just sees. So if the angels are looking at him, they have no need of memory. Um, he talks about the, the angels who fell and makes it clear that they fell in the very first instant. They turned from God. So given a choice to as David describes, to, to see through him or by means of him or in him, they chose otherwise and fell. But the other angels have been with God, and, um, and he makes clear that their numbers are countless. They're, they're beyond comprehension, the number of angels. Man, man's mind cannot grasp how many angels. The number there. of angels who fell or number of angels No, period. angels, period, just in his creation. No, the description, I think, in the Bible in Revelation is a third of the angels or something like that fell. Yeah. Um, it's at this point that Dante is going to take his leave of Beatrice. Um, it's a touching moment. Um, Five sixty-four. Dante, as he approaches God, his desire for wanting to see God has increased, stage by stage by stage. He gets stronger and stronger. That's the end. That's what all of his desires were for. And as he's moved close to Him, the, the desires intensify. Five sixty-four. If all I said of her up to this time were gathered into a single poem of praise, it would be but a scanty comment now. The beauty I saw there goes far beyond our mortal reach. I think that only he who made it knows the full joy of its being. At this point, I admit to my defeat. No poet, comic, or tragic ever was more outdone by his theme than I am now. There's no way for him to adequately describe how important she's been to him. I think, I, I'm, I hope again, I'm, I have to be careful. I think that's got to be true for most of us, that we look at our lives and we feel a debt to somebody. I mean, we just, um, Tiger Woods said it today, just, I mean, he said, I wouldn't be here without, you know, how many of us would be where we are if we didn't have help all along the way? Um, I, I still have a memory of, of, a, of a teacher who came to me when I was in sixth grade. I don't have very, very, very many memories of 
my childhood, but I can remember this teacher when I left grammar school, I think it was sixth grade, you know how you, you get your teachers to sign off and things, and she had to see something in me that wasn't very good, but, but she said, she said uh, her words to me were, um, no, man, it, no man is ever so big that he can't afford to be small. No, I mean, I, 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 I just think, I just, I don't remember who she was, I don't have a record, but I'm so grateful. I think most of us are for people, when you look back, who happen to say something or do something that becomes a part of our lives that we carry with us um, forever. From the first day that I beheld her face in this life till that vision of her now, I could trust in my poems to sing her praise. But now I must stop trying to pursue her beauty in my verse, for I have done as much as any artist at his best. As such, I leave her to her heralding. Um, Dante's and Beatrice now are entering the Imperium. This is the, the, the rose, the, um, the Imperium, the rose of the Imperium. It's where all the souls of the most blessed, all of them are there. But Dante describes them in tears um, um, on page 565. He describes the Imperium in terms of a river with banks of flowers and bright lights coming in and out of that river to flying to both sides. And here's a description of it. Um, um, middle of 565. No sooner had these brief assuring words entered my ears than I was full aware my senses now were raised beyond their powers. They're in the Imperium. The power of new sight lit up my eyes so that no light, however bright it were, would be too brilliant for my eyes to bear. And I saw that, and I saw light that was a flowing stream blazed in splendid sparks between two banks, painted by spring in miracles of color. Out of this stream, the sparks of living light were shooting up and settling on the flowers. They looked like rubies set in rings of gold. Down. The deep desire burning, urging you to seek the answers to what you've seen, pleases me more the more I see it surge. But you must first drink of these waters here before such thirst as yours is satisfied. Think about the deer panting for water, the images of water, life-giving in the Bible. Um, so Dante puts his head into the water. It's, it's like what happened in Purgatory, except now it's the grace of God. This is life-giving. Then she said, the stream, the jewels you are to leap in and out of, the, the smiling blooms are all prefigurations of their truth. They're not fully what they are. It, he still has some, some ways to go before he can actually be able to see what's in front of him. These things are not imperfect in themselves. The defect, rather, lies within your sight, as yet not strong enough to reach such heights. Remember the principle. Sight precedes love, always. The end, of, the end of our life is to see God's face, to see him, to know the joy that will come from that. Sight precedes love. We can't love well what we don't know. So he puts his face in. No sooner had the waves of my eyes drunk within those waters than the river turned from its straight course into a circumference. So it's now not just a stream between two banks, it's a large circle. So he's looking at the, the Imperium, the rose, but it's divided in half. On one side are all the people who, who believed in Christ before he came, 
and on the other are all the people who believed in Christ after he came. And they're all in tears. Um, it's the celestial <clears throat> rose. O splendid grace of God, through which I saw the one true kingdom's triumph, grant me now the power to find words for what I saw. Um, I love this line. He sees the tears with all of the figures uh, there. Page 565, as he looks at it, there, near and far, nor adds nor takes away, for where God rules directly without agents, the laws of nature in no way apply. Another translation reads this, there neither nearness nor distance added or took away, for where God governs immediately, natural law has no relevance. I described this last time, remember? <laughs> I mean, we're, I'm using a metaphor. If somebody were a thousand miles away from me in heaven, they would be as clear as if they were right in front of me, because the laws of time and space don't apply. He's with God. There's only seeing now, okay? There near and far nor adds nor takes away for where God rules directly without agents, the laws of nature in no way apply. She says, look at our city, see its vast expanse. You see our seats so filled, only a few remain for souls that heaven still desires. Mm -hmm. um, Is that not predestination? Don't go there. <laughs> Saving a Mark. spot for you. <laughs> 570. <laughs> what do I what do I do with you? What to, what to do? Somebody help me here. 570. A triune light which sparkles in one star upon their sight, the filler of our of full joy. Look down upon us in our um, tempest here. If the barbarians coming from such parts as every day are spanned by Hellas, traveling the sky with her beloved son. When they saw Rome, her mighty monuments, the days, the Lateran, built high, outsoared all mortar art, were so struck with amazement that I, coming to heaven from such moral earth, from, <coughs> from man's time to divine eternity, from Florence to a people just <coughs> insane, with what amazement must I have been struck? <coughs> Has everybody seen the metaphor? Mm -hmm. Have any of you guys, have any of you seen uh, the movie Gladiator? Yes. You remember when the men from, I don't know, the outreach world were brought to Rome as slaves, gladiators, where they were going to fight in the Colosseum? They looked, it was, I, I thought whoever did that movie had to have read this passage. They looked, imagine that, people coming from tribes or villages to look at Rome with all of its architecture and structure, the beauty of it, the grandeur. If you remember that movie, they, they look, they just stand there in awe because they've never seen anything like it. Um, if that would be true, imagine Dante now looking at um, the beatific rose, the, um, the celestial rose. But now my eyes had quickly taken in the general plan of all of paradise, but had not fixed themselves on any part, 571. With new kindled eagerness to know, I turned around to ask my lady things that to my mind were still not clear enough. When I expected, what I expected was not what I saw. I thought to see Beatrice, but there saw an elder in the robes of heaven's saints. Um, he's, um, he's now in the presence of Bernard, St. Bernard, who was one of the great mystical lovers of Mary. Dante's just reinforcing Mary's central role in salvation history, that she... Remember, what, in one sense, what we've been seeing are Christ bearers. 
Beatrice is a Christ bearer. She comes to take Dante beyond what Virgil can give. Um, he's been meeting Christ bearers all along, Im people imaging Christ, and now Bernard comes, who, um, who great, great, great devotions to Mary. 572, through your own power, through your own excellence, I recognize the grace and effect of all these things that I've seen with my eyes. From bondage into freedom, you led me by all those paths. Um, go down, she so far away, or so it seemed, looked down at me and smiled. Then to eternal light, she turned once more. She's left, she's, joined, she's taken her place in the rose. She looks at Donnie, beaming with joy. Dante sees her now. For him to go a step farther, he needs St. Bernard. Anybody, anybody want to offer a thought on that? Why Beatrice leaves here? Why she didn't just finish the She's journey with him? Huh? She's female. That's a very sexist remark. <laughs> Why? I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Actually, it may be. This is, there may, there may, I mean, I think there's something to the... Remember, there's something to the masculine intellect. I mean, Dante, the hero of the epics are men. Uh-huh. But 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 it, but the but the major figures here are women. Mary, Lucia, Beatrice. They're the ones who and here Mary is, is center stage. I mean everything going on here leading to Christ is through her. But it's kind of a question, but it's kind of a statement too, and that because it's something I struggle with in reading this, is I don't get the Beatrice thing. Everyone else is either someone from history, someone from the Bible, someone of mm -hmm. either really good or really bad, but famous. And Beatrice is some chick you like. So say, say the last part again. Beatrice is some chick he used to like. Oh God. So, but but the question here is that if you're going to get into heaven, I would see it being a different female, somebody from the Bible, somebody from a saint. Joan of Arc. So yeah, yeah, somebody famous. No, you know, I mean that's the whole point. It's humanity. Yeah. I mean, well, hold on, Mark. So, so, but the reason no, no, I, I've it, said it, so I'm a little bit surprised, but let me just, I mean, this is, in some sense, it's so clear, because we've been seeing it. She's, she's here, I mean, the, the Bible, the Bible is a part of our, wait, oh, let me put it this way, Joan of Arc didn't exist in the Bible. She's a saint. Catherine, Sienna, Teresa, um, name a male, I mean, saint. Um... All of those people don't exist in the Bible. They've taken their place in history because they were outside of the Bible doing something to bring Christ into the world now. You, it's, I mean, I, I'm a little bit, wait, wait, I'm surprised because I want to go on. You're supporting what I'm saying. Yeah, no. It's, she's not a chick. I mean, it's, it's really insulting. It's really, wait, Mark, be still. Be still for a minute. You asked a question. Be still. Um, you want an answer? Um, if you're asking a question, ask and listen. Because it's been said again and again. Dante saw in her an image of the Trinity. It may not have been scriptural, but what he's showing in that, I, I took pains with this earlier. Most of us at some point in our lives have something like an epiphany. Whether we're aware of it or not, we can see something. It doesn't have to come from scripture. Very often it doesn't. It shows Christ's presence in the world then. The importance of that can't be, can't be minimized here. She's not a chick, to put it that way, is degrading to what Dante's doing. She's an image of the Trinity living. You don't have to be in the Bible to be a saint. Lots of people have been canonized because of what they did with Christ. Beatrice is a figure like that. She, Dante loved her because she imaged the Trinity. So in some sense, it's natural for he, Virgil. He loved Virgil. He turned to him. We've gone through this. 
Virgil has everything to give Dante that only a pagan can. Beatrice images something a pagan can't give him. And what we see in her, if we read it, is what she's an extraordinary figure. She's, she's radiant with intellectual life. She's radiant with love. Um, she's gracious. She's beautiful. She's intelligent. Um, she's not a chick. Um, she's a, an extraordinary woman. And, and more important, she's an extraordinary guide. Everyone else in the book is known to all. Beatrice is only known to Dante. No, she's not known. No, she's known historically because we know from records. I mean, that are we've got records of what went on. So, she's a real person. Well, we know that. She's a real person, but I'm just saying. You know, if you take Saint Bernard, okay, or anybody else, good or bad in this, it was known to me. I think it's. I mean, it's what. And that, I guess that's what I struggle with. Uh, no, I figure it would have been somebody bad. No, I think it's. That adds to the richness of it all. Though. Yeah. See, the the whole point. The whole really. The whole point is. It's not, it's not Thomas, it's not Paul, it's not, give me a male, somebody give me a male saint, modern. Thomas Francis. Good, Thomas More, well, more modern, but it's not one of those figures. What Dante's showing us is that Christ is, wait, let me put it differently. What would somebody, Christ said this, um, a prophet's not honored in his own town, right? This, uh, this is a profound truth. This is from Christ. What he's saying is, the closer we are to people, the more likely it is for us to feel contempt. That's because we, we get familiar. Familiarity breeds contempt, okay? Christ is saying, in fact, he even, I'd love that line, it was it Benjamin, he said, from there's no guile in this, you know, the, because most of the other Jews were. Um, he couldn't work miracles in that town because of a familiarity, because their faith wasn't alive. Imagine what it would have been like, I'm trying to indirectly answer, but imagine what it would have been like living around um, Francis or Thomas More. We saw the movie. Oh, here, better yet, um, we saw the movie of Man for All Seasons. That movie um, honors him tremendously. If you read some of the biographies on More, lots of people hated him. He had heretics executed which in our, our modern world is horrible. It's a sign of intolerance. He loved his faith so much, he, he was so faithful, so devoted, he had people executed because of heresies. We would think that would be horrible today. Imagine living with people who we know now as saints. Would all, would all of the people have seen them as saints? No, but that doesn't mean they weren't. The beauty of Beatrice, I mean, Valerie just hit it on the head, I think, that, and Carl, is that it, the importance is it's not a saint, it's not Francis, it's not Catherine. What Dante's showing us is there are extraordinary powers of Christ very often where we don't see them. And Dante, we couldn't be clear, this is not a chick. This woman is extraordinary. And to, to reduce that is, is to, I mean, it's really a bad reading. We're not seeing something good where something good is present. She's an extraordinary woman. We're, we're here where we are, about ready to go to God, because of her place. I don't, want to, I don't want to go past this. Does anybody want to take up my question? Why does Bernard come in at this point? Why does Beatrice leave? You said maybe because he's a kind of an ambassador to Mary, like a special yeah. connection. Yeah. That's where he's headed out. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. It's a puzzling. Remember, I mean, this is so much like the Virgil scene. Remember, he turns when Beatrice approaches and he turns and Virgil's gone. It's a moment of excitement. He, he wants to see God at this point. Beatrice has taken him this far. She's an extraordinary person. 
he turns to her, and it's not Virgil going back, it's Beatrice going forward. She takes her place in the rows, and she looks back at him, beaming. So there's this joy, it's, it's, it's like it's taken the Virgil thing and reversed it. But it leaves me with this question, why, why Bernard in this last... If this is a journey growing ever deeper in faith, in approaching God, why does he come in here? Because this is a this is not a small thing in his journey. <clears throat> so do I. My only I mean you said it. I think it's because he's he's a mystic devoted to Mary, and Mary is the meteor. She's the one who brings Christ to everybody. That that it's Dante's way of showing. I mean, partly goes to what you're saying, Mark. That. Except I'm not, this is not a chick. Beatrice is an extraordinary woman, but he's showing, like Virgil, that for Dante to complete this journey, something more is needed than what she's given. And, I, and I'm saying that aware, there's, I mean, there's not enough good to say about her. She's, everything she's done is extraordinary. Well, there's other saints with Mary, but they haven't been born yet. <laughs> say that again? Because yeah. other saints are very connected to Mary, but they haven't been born, born yet. yet. So you could put somebody else in that spot, too. Instead of Bernard. Yeah. Like St. Bernadette. I don't think so. I don't no? think No, and I don't. I mean, I really believe there's... There, I, it's hard for me to believe there isn't... There's something different about the masculine mind in its mm -hmm. devotion. And also that Bernard was so important in reforming the church. That, oh, okay. That, that's that it, his, his virtue goes, his, his, his power, whatever we want to call it, goes so beyond his personal life. He was so important in shaping the tradition and um, in his devotions. Um, let's go to the end. God, quick. Here, quickly go to the end. And here's the interesting thing. It, <coughs> St. Bernard makes a prayer now, he himself, on page um, 582, he has to make a prayer on Dante's behalf for Dante to see this. So it underscores the importance of prayer, of reverence, of the depth of love that's involved in Bernard Berberi. O light supreme, so far beyond the reach of mortal understanding to my mind, Relend now some small part of your own self and give to my tongue eloquence enough to capture just one spark of all your glory. For by returning briefly to my mind and something even faintly my verse, this is Dante asking um, um, for the gifts to be able to describe what's about to take place. Um, the, the similes right now I think are extraordinary. If I turned my eyes away, I think from the sharp billions of the living ray which they endured, I would have lost my senses, and this, as I recall, gave me more strength to keep on gazing till I could unite my vision with the infinite worth I saw. How can any man see God and come back to describe that moment? I mean, imagine how hard this is. And, I mean, here's, here's my admiration for Dante. If you've been paying attention all along and reading closely, you know that metaphor after simile after simile after simile after is describing degrees of increasing beauty. It never stops. I mean, what he's done is extraordinary. Um, 
And this, as I recall, gave me more strength to keep on gazing till I could unite my vision with the infinite worth I saw. O grace abounding in allowing me to dare to fix my gaze on the eternal light, so deep my vision was consumed in it, I saw how it contains within its depths all things bound in a single book by love of which creation is the scattered leaves. Everything we experience in our life is multiple, right? It's, it's, it's not simple. Our life is broken into fragments. To look on God is to see the unity of simplicity itself. He is being itself. There's no divisions in him. He's whole. Dante's about to look at him. How in the world he starts to look at him and he sees this simplicity. So at odds with the multiplicity that is our experience of our world. I saw it contains within its steps all things bound in a single book by love of which creation is the scout. Dante's looking into God. He's looking into me. He's seeing this vast world in its simplicity. I, I know I saw the universal form, the fusion of all things, for I can feel while speaking now my heart leap up in joy. Remember, he's, he's at home writing. He's recalling this moment all along, and, and now he's approaching its end. One instant brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that stunned Neptune when he saw Argo's keel. Somebody describe that metaphor. It's one of the most, I think it's one of the most powerful in the whole book. Remember, he just described himself outside of the Colosseum, like the barbarians. It, it, when he looked at the rose, it was like a barbarian looking at the, or he said, imagine if how they felt, imagine how I feel looking. And now he's saying, one instant brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that stunned Neptune where he saw Argo's keel. Somebody paraphrase that simile. Sorry? I don't remember the story of Argo. Don't deal with the story. Just do the, do the, because we don't, you just do the simile. What's he saying? And so my mind was totally entranced in gazing deeply, motionless, intent. The more it saw, the more it burned to see. And one is so transformed within that light that it would be impossible to think of ever turning one eyes, one eyes from that side. Now, he's getting closer to, do, to seeing it. And then he wants to see the mystery at the center. What's the mystery at the center of the Trinity? How the sun could have taken on a body and returned and taken his place up in heaven. An infinite God, an infinite God, taking on a human body, returning to God. So he's seeing the Trinity, but his heart wants more. He wants to get to that mystery because that's the central mystery of our faith. But go back to this simile. One instant brings me more forgiveness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that's done Neptune. Dante is plunged into a stupor. There's no other way to explain it. Imagine looking at God and coming back to the world. <laughs> Truly, and trying to describe that experience. He's recalling the, the quest of the, um, Jason and the quest, I think, that, you know, where the, the quest for the Golden Fleece. And the ship is going by. And ne this is really interesting. Neptune's a god. He's yeah. stunned by it. Because Neptune is amazed that humans could have done this. Dante's plunged into a stupor that's greater than 25 centuries. But it's like 
being stunned the way Neptune was. So, I mean, just imagine seeing God and gradually recalling that memory and then trying to find words to... So it's left him for a moment in something like a stupor or an ecstasy. I mean, it, it's beyond him. You can't... Um, so he's beginning to behold the Trinity, but the greatest desire for him is to see the mystery at the center of it. 584. Not that within the living light there was more than a sole aspect of the divine which always is what it has always been. Yet as I learned to see more and the power of the vision grew in me, the single aspect as I changed seemed to me to change itself. The deeper he went into it, the more it changed, the more he changed. Within its depths, clarity of substance, I saw the great light shine into three circles in three clear colors bound in one same sphere. So the Trinity, they're indwelling, they're distinct, but they're one. How my weak words fall short of my conception was it itself so far from what I saw that weak is much too weak a word to use. O eternal, fixed in self alone, known only to yourself and knowing self, you love and glow knowing and being known. That circling which as I conceived it, shone in you as your own first reflected light, when I had looked deep into it a while, seemed in itself, in its own self-color, to be depicted with man's very image. My eyes were totally absorbed in. He's looking at the sun who became Christ, who went back to take up his place in the Trinity. He is an infinite God in the form of a human now. Um, its own self-color to me depicted with man's very image. My eyes were totally absorbed in it. As the geometer who tries so hard to square the circle but cannot discover, think as he may, the principle involved. So did I strive with this new mystery? I yearned to know how could our image fit into that circle? How could it conform? But my own wings could not take me so high. Then a great flash of understanding struck my mind, and suddenly its wish was granted. At this point, he sees it. At this point, power failed. High fantasy, but like a wheel in perfect balance turning, I felt my will and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. He's brought back to our universe. I just want to make this one comment because we're already late, but it seems to me what's going on right now, remember the central can, can, canto, as I described it when we were at the level of the sun, the very middle of the Paradiso, Thomas is explaining why Solomon was the wisest man, and it's then that we get this discourse on the human body and whether it will be able to withstand the light when souls return. And Solomon's answer is yes, because the body will be transformed. At the, I just want to say, at the center of this mystery, as it ends, is this what I think is indirectly a celebration of the human body. We take the body for granted. We live in a Calvinistic world. The Protestants generally hate the body. Calvin hated it. Luther looked down on it. Everything's corrupt. We, we celebrate the body. It's on the corpus. It's on, the corpus is there, on a cross. We take the Eucharist in us. Every time we take the Eucharist in us, we believe we're serious, we're taking in the body of God. There, can there be a stranger aspect of our faith than that? The modern world looks down on the body, most intellectuals do, at the center of our faith is this celebration of it. We're not angels. Our glory is our body. 
It's what makes us different from angels. All, we, we are images of God, inner body. The greatest thing about us is our humanity. Look at modern novels and the treatment of our humanity today. They're all skeptical, dark, put down. They're, um, what's the word? Debunking, debunking. They're always putting down our human nature. Always. At the center of this poem is this song to Mary, song to Christ, and the celebration of this human body. He's looking, the very last image he had is looking at Christ, wondering how in the world can a God conform to the Trinity having a body. So he can't describe it, it's beyond words, but that's the center of our faith. It's an amazing thing. I've said this before, you know, Father said it, Father Flynn, when he said, put a popsicle, offer a child the Eucharist or a popsicle when he's three years old and ask him which he'll choose. Put, put, put down a gold bullion, you know, next to the Eucharist and ask an adult which he will choose. Father's answer was, I mean, you know his answer. If you had to choose between being with having an infinite God inside you or a million dollars, which would you choose? We, we so derogate, we so put down that act. I mean, it, sh it should be the cause of the greatest joy in our life. We're taking God into our bodies. This is my body. This is my blood. It's a, it's a celebration of us as human beings. There's a glory in our humanity. What in the modern world, so we're, we're the product of apes and you know, dark holes and I've asked you this question before. Our, one of the fundamental questions always ask us, what are our beginnings? Are the beginnings of the ancient world high or low? We know they're high. The beginnings, the beginnings of the modern world, absolutely low. This is an extraordinary celebrated celebration of our human nature. It's something we should be glad for. Dante's done everything he can to help us celebrate, you know, in the Paradiso. To me, it's one of the most extraordinary works in all of our literature. We're past time, sorry. Um, next, next week, be prepared. Bring boxing gloves. Mil Milton and Dante, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I'm going to pray for peace at the beginning of our... You guys have a good week. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Give me a, just give me one second. Yeah, because I'll put in a little bit of coffee. I don't know why this thing doesn't. That one goes off easy.